Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez and Gary Shepard and I are looking forward to our discussion with our guest today, Weber Shandwick Chief Innovation Officer, Chris Perry, who also, by the way, serves as an editor of his firm's online newsletter, Media Genius, which shares information about the effects of digital media on society, culture, and human behavior. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Mike, I'm I just I'm feeling so good that the Red Sox are out of the baseball championship hunt. So I am just all stoked up for this episode of the course. Yeah, the Astros got in. Yeah, I know, I know. But you know, take what you can get, Mike. There you go. Anyway, you you you've read Media Genius. What are you most looking forward to? You know, I what I like about Media Genius is the forward-looking technology stuff uh-huh. about that. It's not something that comes naturally to me. So things like Comtech. And we're yeah. going to talk today about, you know, how you and I using some technology could become the cleanup hitter for the New York Yankees. So oh, it's wow. that kind of, yes. And it's not a slide rule. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> None of it I understand, but I think it's really cool. And we'll talk uh, to Chris about it. Well, before we get to Chris, let's talk about a few items in the news. And given that we will no doubt speak with Chris about innovation, let's talk about a little financial innovation in the news and what it's enabling. And what I'm referring to, Gary, is that in recent years, I've been reading up in in financial news and and, and articles about something called SPACs. Now, that's an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, also known in financial circles as blank check companies. Essentially, these are shell corporations listed on a stock exchange with the sole purpose of acquiring another private company, thus making it easier for a new entity to go public without going through the same bureaucratic hurdles of a traditional IPO or, or initial public offering. The SPACs last year, by the way, raised a record $82 billion in capital mm. markets. Now, on this podcast in recent weeks, and, and actually even a little bit, I think in the past, we've talked about WeWork and its many challenges about how it went through this amazing growth. And then it had big financial losses. And a lot of that was tied to the unusual management style of its CEO, Adam Newman. And we also talked about how that also got in the way of its efforts around an IPO two years ago. Well, this past week, two years after we were attempted to become a public company, it finally entered the public markets by merging with one of these SPACs, one of these special purpose acquisition companies. Among the investment firms involved were BlackRock, the Boston-based Fidelity. At last Friday's market close, WeWork was worth about $10.3 billion, which seems pretty amazing, but it's a fraction of the $47 billion it was valued at back in 2019, just prior to its failed attempt to do an IP. But rather than discuss WeWork and its back, I'd love to turn our attention to someone else who used this financing tool just this week as well, our former president, Donald Trump, who used it to form a media company 
It goes by the name Trump Media and Technology Group, or TMTG. Interestingly, TMTG's intended flagship product is to be a Twitter-like social network called, of all things, Truth Social, uh, which the former president said in, in a statement just this past week is that this is intended to stand up to the tyranny of big tech. By the way, Truth Social also has a rule that prohibits users on its platform from disparaging Truth Social, I guess, even when it's the truth. Anyway, Gary, clearly Trump misses being on Twitter. But what should we make of all of this? Does this splinter media even more? And should we make anything of the way this effort is being funded? Well, you know, it's interesting that the president and his supporters are continuing this argument that they're standing up to the tyranny of big media and alleged censorship of conservative points of view in a week when all of this information on Facebook is out there, the Facebook papers, and one of the findings of which is that Facebook did give special treatment to right-wing politicians and, and right-wing... That's not even said they stoked the fires on January 6th. Exactly. So, so you know, look, we'll talk to, to Chris about this in, in our guest segment, but Trump has tried several times to launch something outside of Twitter. Uh, he clearly misses it, as you say. And I just, uh, I don't think you'll see much of Truth, truth Social. I, I don't think it's a long-term play here. It's, I, I think it's another sort of attempt to throw something at the wall and see, see what sticks. His website lasted all of about a week, I think, Mike, right? But you have yeah. to watch these things. Let, let's remember. He has a share of, of businesses that haven't exactly succeeded. Correct, correct. And, and, and look, at one point, Fox News was, you know, people sort of, when it was announced, you know, poo-pooed it. So you never know what's going to catch fire these days, particularly right now. And certainly there's an audience for these kinds of things out there, as evidenced by the viewership on Fox and, and the popularity on Facebook of people like Ben Shapiro, very conservative, and I would say misinformation. So, you know, the irony here, Mike, though, of somebody who told more than 30,000 lies, I think it is, when he was president, launching a platform called Truth is not lost on me. <laughs> well, we'll have, to, we'll have to see what happens. I know that there have been other right-wing efforts at creating a social media platform that haven't quite panned out, but clearly he's, he was able to raise the money for this thing. Yeah. Uh, how much of that actually goes into product and how much of it goes into the company's success as they say in the news business, right? OTWT, only time will tell. <laughs> Turning to another social media company in the news, you mentioned them, Facebook. Facebook continues to have more than its fair share of bad news. The U.S. Congress and the British Parliament are conducting investigations. There actually may be more than one whistleblower. News over the weekend suggests Facebook has promoted extremism in India's politics. You know, and more is being written about documents showing how Facebook itself and its Instagram app, which it owns, have had a negative impact on children and teenagers, fostering cyberbullying and poor body image. And then even over the weekend, you had Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder, claiming that Facebook is the victim of a false narrative. And at the same time, suggesting, you know, that 
the company's uh, financial growth and its efforts to try and get younger folks involved in its platform actually is all about uh, a more positive future. In many ways, this probably these last couple of weeks have been the worst nightmare for Facebook since the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which I think it, it still is under pressures to comply with a court order on. So a lot of challenges, many fronts. That said, as we were preparing for this podcast, there were multiple rumors in the media that Facebook is on the verge of announcing a big rebranding effort, which would focus on its expansion, and get this, the so-called metaverse. Now, I don't know what you know about the metaverse, but I know that uh, there have been references to this in a lot of movies, I think, you know, futuristic kinds of things. But the word metaverse is a term from science refers to a future version of the internet that people access using virtual reality and avatar reality technology. And CEO Mark Zuckerberg actually first publicly used the term this summer, talking about Facebook eventually becoming a metaverse company. Now, what I want is your take on something akin to this, and that's that you know, we both work for companies that have undergone major repositioning of brands. I remember, I think you were at GE when they launched Echo Imagination. I've been with multiple companies as they went through rebranding exercises. But is this a good move for Facebook? And especially at this particular juncture, will a repositioning of its brand actually help? Or is this just a diversion? Well, as, as you said, only, only time will tell. And and let me let me just say this. Look, if you're going to do a rebranding, a brand is supposed to say something about a company. It's not just a word. It's about your values, who you are, why you exist. We've heard that from guests on the podcast over the over the years. And so if it's just an empty renaming of the company and not a recognition of what the loss of trust and this incredible loss of reputation, Mike. I mean, really, have you seen uh, you know, this consortium of journalists that have released the Facebook papers over the past week. I mean, it's really extraordinary to watch this disintegration of a, a really important company's reputation. So look, I'm, I don't know anything about the metaverse, right? You know, it's like, maybe if I have a few beers, somebody can explain well, it to uh, me. It's a challenge that whatever you ran this to, that becomes a proxy in people's minds for a company that's in chaos and is dealing with kind of a a confused state of matters. So so I'm with you. I think fundamentally brands need to be about who you are and give a sense of where you're going and what you are at, at, at the very core, or at least what you intend to be. And you said OTWT. And and Mike, if it's intended to be a diversion, it will only make matters worse for Facebook. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Gary, I also saw your your former company in in the news, GE, General Electric, is going to require all 56,000 employees in the U.S. to be vaccinated against COVID-19, citing requirements as a federal contract, Biden's executive order stated back in September. I also saw where Walmart is taking a further step 
to now get its corporate people back in the office. Now, Walmart itself was, I think, the first major retailer to require its employees to be fully vaccinated. And now it's telling its corporate workforce it's time to get back in the office, saying in a note to employees, there is no substitution for being in the offices together. Now, this, this move, I think, comes at a very interesting time. A lot of companies we've talked to are, are grappling with whether to make a return to the office mandatory for employees who transition to remote work back some 18 months ago. And surveys have shown that many workers might actually refuse to return to offices full-time. So, and in fact, the CEO of Google's parent company, Alphabet, said just recently it would enact a hybrid model. And Amazon this month said it was going to let its corporate employees work from home indefinitely. Gary, how should corporations be approaching this return to office question? What should be their primary considerations when they do this? Well, Mike, we're we're in a tight labor market. We've heard about this wave of, you know, they call it the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Boy, I, I would put talent first mm-hmm. as a consideration on uh, on how I approach the workplace and not just at the top, everyone in the organization. You know, I know that's harder for people who are in retail and that kind of thing and brick and mortar, like uh, Walmart is half its business, I, I, I think. So I would just say talent comes first. And in some places, not all, I would look at flexibility from a work standpoint as a competitive, maybe it's a competitive advantage mm-hmm. where people's attitudes towards- some industries, work- it might be, it might be, you know, the actual stakes, you know, it might be- Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, and, and, and so in this kind of labor market, I, I think you have to be flexible. You have to be consistent across the organization you have to tell people why one group of people might be treated differently from others, you know, corporate employees versus people who are in factories and that kind of thing. I, th- I think it's a total talent play. And I think, you know, COVID's going to be with us for a while. And, and I don't think people's attitudes toward work are going to go back to where they were, t- you know, two years ago. So that's, that's my view. Talent comes first. Yeah. And, and, and to your earlier point, I think it also uh, beyond talent is also the nature of the work and the nature of yeah. business. I, I think about where a lot of the communicators and marketers who listen to this program and what their agencies and what their companies are all about. But it seems like within the communication function, you can almost do anything, anywhere, anytime and the, the, the one sort of question is, you know, what does your client or, or yeah. your bosses expect in terms of access and their ability or inability to pull you into a meeting? And, you know, I'm sure this is also a generational thing where those of us who are baby boomers are probably a little bit more comfortable wanting, you know, to have that water cooler talk, although haven't existed in the office for (laughs) 40 years. All of that said, I think that, I think it's the smart executive is going to look at this, as you said, as a battle for talent. And what is the impact on that talent and their ability to recruit and retain? You know, you know, Mike, and and, uh, your point about uh, the people who listen to this podcast 
communicators, marketers, students, you know, this idea of innovation, I, I just think getting people in a room, <laughs> you know, there's a chemistry there that yes. doesn't happen. You and I are on Zoom now. And that would be something I would be worried about as an agency leader, particularly. Yeah, you know, and, and it's a little bit different. You and I, you know, go back decades with one another. And and, and, and so there's a little thing that I, you know, just by looking at your face, I can I can read something. <laughs> same with me. I feel so you bad that you have to look at my face. <laughs> but it's really hard, I think, sometimes when you don't have that familiarity and yeah. you are still part of a work team. There are times when I've been amazed at that spark of magic and creativity that comes across when people are bantering ideas in a room. Totally. You know, and, and Mike, can you imagine being a, a new person joining an agency and not going into an office? I mean, not even meeting your, for two years in some cases, yeah. your, your, your colleagues. That, boy, that seems tough. Well, and think about this in another way. I can remember being in large organizations where I thought it was imperative that co communicators have a reality check as to what our, our company was doing in the field and with customers and used to schedule trips for communicators yes. so that they could taste, smell, feel the grist of mm. what those interactions were like, what this business or company was all about. And I think some of that element could, you know, fall by the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great a point. Total, totally a, a virtual company. Anyway, another organization going through some pains. We talk a lot about sports on this show, but it's the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the start of the season. I was, I, I was thrilled. They said we're coming back with an 82-game schedule. It's been shortened the last two years. Two years ago, the season stopped in the middle, and they coalesce back in Florida to do have all of its games in Florida without fans. So fans are back in the arenas. But the and the vast majority of players within the NBA got fully vaccinated before the season started. I think it was somewhat prompted, by the way, by what the rules would be for unvaccinated players in the sense that they have to undergo daily testing before entering any team wow. facility or interacting with other players or coaches. They'd have to undergo lab-based game day testing. They'd have to wear a mask in almost all situations when they weren't on the court playing. And the unvaccinated would have to have a locker far away from the vaccinated players. Now, a twist on this is there are local market requirements. So like three markets, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City, unvaccinated players are not permitted to play or practice in their home arenas at all, at all. Enter Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving was the NBA Rookie of the Year in 2012. He was an NBA champion in 2016 with LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's a seven-time NBA All-Star, and he's the point guard for one of the NBA's top teams in the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn's in New York City. So Kyrie Irving has opted not to get vaccinated for personal reasons. And as a consequence, he cannot play in home games. This past Sunday, hundreds of fans protested in front of Barclays Center ahead of the Brooklyn Nets 
first home game of the season, chanting, let Kyrie play, let Kyrie play. <laughs> the Nets issued a statement. The statement read, Kyrie has made a personal choice, and we respect his individual right to choose. Currently, the choice restricts his ability to be a full-time member of the team, and we will not permit any member of our team to participate with part-time availability. Gary, did the Brooklyn Nets get it right? Yes, totally right. You and I have talked about how team sports is really, in many ways, the best teams have an amazing chemistry. Yeah. And I just don't think you can have somebody who's a part-time player on a team. I, I don't know that it's ever happened successfully. I could be wrong. But the decision that he can't play is the right one. It's based on what the rules they're facing. Just like GE, Mike, you mentioned GE. They're a federal contractor. People are protesting. GE employees are striking because they don't want a, a vaccine mandate in their workplace. So the decision is right. And then the second decision is, is also right, in my view. Imagine it's like the Beatles. You know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, Paul McCartney is going to be our part-time bassist. He's going to play whenever we're, you know, outside of the United States or something. I just don't think it works. And I think the Nets took a really smart approach to this, thinking about the team, right. even though he's a great player, right. he is, but they thought about the team first. And I think that's what you have to do here. Yeah, to your point. I, I mean, I think it, you play a team sport, you either decide you're going to be part of that team or not. Exactly. I mean, one of the things I always admired about our uh, our favorite team, the New York Yankees, is throughout the ages, nobody has ever had their last name on their jersey, on their uniform. Right. And and that was that was purposely symbolic to say, you know, none of this is really worth more than the other. We play as a team, and right. uh, and 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 you know, I. Uh, I am, when it comes to basketball, in part because of my son, Will, is a fanatical Philadelphia 76ers fan. Ah. I get a little frustrated with the situation with Ben Simmons as a holdout because I think it's, you get into these situations and, you know, there's no I in team. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're old timers now because we are old timers. I, of course, associate with the New York Nets back in the old American Basketball Association. And such great memories in the mid-70s of what was an amazing team with Dr. J, Julius Serving, was on that team. And I can still name the starting five off the top of my head for that team. Larry Keenan was a great player, later for the Spurs, was on that team. Billy Paltz was the center. Brian Taylor. And John Williamson were the guards. I'm impressed. Isn't that? I mean, so look, I've got all of this knowledge about sports in my head, Mike. And and that at three dollars will get you a cup of coffee. (laughs) Totally. This is what I say to my wife. I studied English literature. Can I remember Othello? No, but I can remember the starting five for the New York Nets in 1973. Anyway, but I say kudos to the Brooklyn. Well, good. And and let's now turn our attention to uh, the world of communications, innovation, and the digital world with our guest, Chris Perry.
This fall on the crux of the story, we're focusing on the intersection of business and society and the role that communications plays in unlocking solutions to the challenges we face. We've talked about things like climate change with our guests, racial inequities, economic disparity, government paralysis. Boy, I'm getting depressed just talking about this and missing disinformation. And this last topic, I think we're going to talk a lot about today with our guest, who is Chris Perry, the chief innovation officer at Weber Shanwick. And he's really at the center of the discussion around how technology, data, and media are presenting new opportunities and challenges for business and communicators. Just by way of introduction, Chris has been at Weber for 18 years and previously did stints at GM and Edelman. And his weekly Weber Shanwick newsletter, Media Genius, is both necessary and entertaining. Chris, welcome to The Crux. Great to be here, Gary. So first, tell us, what is a chief innovation officer at an agency like Weber Shanwick, and how do you interact with, with clients? Yeah, it's a great entree into the conversation today. It's a very timely role, and it's a unique role. We've invested quite a bit in you know, various forms of, of, of innovation and, and obviously digital over the years, but we've made a, a far more intentional, we've taken intentional steps to really make it core to our business model. So my role is, is both a fortunate role and a unique role. It encompasses corporate strategy. It encompasses what we call R&D, partnership development. And as you alluded to, obviously none of this matters unless we bring it to clients. So there's a client consulting element as well. I, I think it, it might be not unlike maybe what Beth was doing at GE when you were there. Yeah. Re- really thinking about the business model and, and value propositions in ways that maybe go beyond the norm. Oh, that's excellent. And I am, you, you're going to see I'm a fanboy of Media Genius, your newsletter. So I'm going to talk about it a lot. How does that fit in? It's a, your weekly newsletter. Tell us what it is and how does that fit into that client interaction that you're talking about? Yeah. So as, as I talked about the, you know, the elements of the role, I think a really important one for both our, our company and, and, and our clients is the R&D piece. Yep. So Media Geniuses, think of it, of it as an insight platform. It comes from the research and development that we do inside of the company, as well as with partners. There's, as you, you know, alluded to in the newsletter, there's a lot of input that comes from outside of the firm and that's yeah. by design. And really, and I'll talk about the platform more broadly as we go through the discussion, but the newsletter is really a guide to the new, the weird, and at times, again, like alarming effects of digital media on us. And, and, and there's a, a, an underlying element that gets into ethics. We have to understand what media is doing to us in order to advise clients on the right things to do in the right ways to communicate. Otherwise, then our clients become really a part of the problem that we're seeing spinning out all over the place in, in headlines these days. Chris, in Media Genius back in, back in April, you used a term information disorder, and you wrote that information disorder has gone from an issue primarily facing journalists and politicians to a, a slow rolling crisis. What is information disorder? And is it a crisis for corporations? Yeah, I, I think it's a uh, it's a looming crisis for corporations, and let me explain you know as efficiently as I can wh- wh- why <laughs> that is. I, I I don't think it's out of the question to think that media tactics that were used to under undermine the political process are coming for business. There's been an accumulation of evidence that we followed going back to, 
you know, the origin of Media Genius in 2018, where we saw these outliers and these anomalies. And then again, working with, with different partners outside of the media world, we're seeing that really through cybersecurity, there's again, this, this, this weird element of media that, that comes into the fray. I think when we translate that issue from a view of cybersecurity into media security, communicators have to understand media as it operates mm -hmm. today. And that's a really tall order. The logic of media that we have grown accustomed to in, in our various roles as corporate leaders and agency leaders, it's over, right? We've got the incumbent. Think about these as three, three spheres. The left of the incumbent, the right, which is a very powerful force as we've mm -hmm. seen in politics. And I would call the third sphere is the deep. These all interplay off each other. And there's a lot of unpredictability that comes from issues that can be triggered from the deep, the right, or the left that can become mainstream issues. So if you're a CCO or you're in the communications business, you need to lens into what this looks like, how to anticipate issues, how to anticipate attacks before they become material to your business. So the, the, the linchpin of this is not only using intelligence to know what happened, but how it happened. And that's really where where our investments in media security are, are, are starting to pay some dividends. You know, one thing that, that concerns me as you say that is, is that I know that when I was living and working in the agency world with Burson Marsteller and Urente Cuenca, we were beginning to see a fair number of instances where there were false claims about products and false claims about companies. Is, is that increasing as a result of this phenomenon? Yeah. So uh, again, the, the accumulation of evidence is starting to sound the alarm bell, right? Ingredients is a critical territory to dig into because every product is now an information product. Mm -hmm. And information can be used for both good. Here's the positive of, for example, an ethically produced consumer product, or in some cases, maybe a, a misrepresented consumer product. We have been involved in some issues where ingredients have been conveyed to cause harm that are not factual. The communication around causing harm has led to swift decline in product sales. So these aren't just reputation issues that we're dealing with, they're efficacy issues that we're dealing with. And you don't have to look any further than health and obviously the vaccine debates right now right. to see that it's not just about, hey, do I you know, believe in uh, pharmaceutical company exits? Do I believe in these vaccines being beneficial to my or my family's health? So, so as you're uh, suggesting, it can have a, a, a material impact on, on a company's financials. Correct. This is ma ma material stuff that we're dealing with here, for yeah. sure. Now, you say in your newsletter that information disorder isn't only caused by bad actors or, for that matter, opportunists in foreign lands, it, it, that it is spread also because of people like ourselves. You suggest that we all have a responsibility in this, companies included. What can and should companies and the general public do about information disorder? Yeah, so that's a, a great and a super important question and really how we thought of both the design and the introduction of our media security center at the firm. This is a critical issue that requires proper diligence to understand what the field of play looks like. If you think about how a client and agency dynamic works typically, it's a, we have threats, we have problems, and we need answers. 
I think when we get into this media security issues, we have to start with, well, what are the questions that we need to ask before we get into, you know, what, what, like what to look for and what the solutions are. So the first thing that, that we as leaders need to do, and I, I think this does, you know, eventually get into the general public is like, what does the field of play look like? How does it work? And how do we knowingly or, 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 or in some cases, unknowingly become part of the story? So, so to give you a case in point, I did some work for a few years with a nonprofit group called First Draft. First Draft is a research group that goes deep into the sources of mis and disinformation and works with news organizations around the world to update them on the stories of the day, how they have originated and how they've spread and how best to cover the story or choose not to cover the story. Mm -hmm. Because the interesting thing with mis and disinformation is if you cover it, you're spreading it. <laughs> so, so right, right there, by trying to do the right thing, you can be unknowingly continue to convey the story. And obviously mainstream media and big corporations have a pretty big you know, mouthpiece, if you will. And so once again, it, it hits our radar, it's mainstream stuff. So that's one territory, Mike. The other territory is something that obviously corporations have been mindful of for some time, and that's brand safety. So unknowingly, lots of brands subsidize sources of disinformation through their programmatic media buys. So the idea of making sure that your content shows up not only in the right places, but doesn't underwrite the wrong places hmm. is pretty critical stuff for, you know, for the media side of the business, which again, in our world, you know, Magna and IPG media brands, they have a very, very strong stance and point of view and guidance on how, you know, media officers and CCOs need to be thinking about this stuff. So it's a pretty broad field of play that we have to be studying in an ongoing way. Wow. I, I love that second point, Chris, about knowing whether you're unknowingly subsidizing mis and disinformation. How hard is that, Chris? I mean, that's something that I would defer to our media partners for, but there are whitelists yep. that, that, that help. But again, not, not unlike some of the challenges that the social media companies have, you know, these buys are run by machines. They're run by- Right, other, right. Right, so you have to be pretty vigilant, right? In how you, you set up your, your strategies and how you make sure you're monitoring where your stuff is being shown up. So it's, it's a before the fact situation yes. versus after the fact. Okay, so now I'm going to uh, switch to how companies should be thinking about this. I'm going to start by telling a story. You know, I'm coming up on the 10th anniversary of the GE on the front page of the New York Times for not paying taxes, allegedly. And I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast. It was very damaging to the reputation of the company in the middle of the Tea Party emergence and surge in Washington. That genesis of that story was planted by a competitor. So in an old fashioned way, Chris, right? With briefing of, of journalists, et cetera. Are competitors today using, are companies using mis and disinformation in the battle for market share? Wow, is that, a, is that an interesting question? Because you know, clearly in highly competitive industries, you know, competition does find its way into the media, right? Yeah. I think where where we have a an obligation as leaders, whether you're sitting on corporate side, agency side, NGO side, is to think about the ethical code of, of what we're up to here. 
So we have tools at our disposal to fabricate messages, fabricate images, fabricate video, do some pretty, pretty terrible things. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. Yeah. We can't do that. Again, like there's, there, there, there's a, there's a code by which we have to work. It's very easy to maybe break the code. If you don't Mm -hmm. know, I keep coming back to using the terminology field of play. There's also uh, tactics and tools to be used on that field of play. And we have to be on the right side of, of, of business and business ethics. You know, if we're going to continue to be reputable agencies and reputable companies in the marketplace, this is information war that we're talking about here. Exactly. And I, I think there's clearly, you know, somebody said for playing defense in an information war, playing offense, you know, has some implications that have to be thought of very, very clearly. And that doesn't even start to get into, you know, using AI and AI getting out of control and some of the things that, you know, a, a, you know, ethics oriented people in the AI world are thinking deeply about these days. Well, bravo to you. That That is so, so important, I think. And you mentioned it's something I want to talk to my students about at Boston University next semester. Really, really important. So in that environment and, and with everything we've discussed, Chris, CCOs these days that you interact with, you know, they have limited budgets. They're looking for the smartest spend for their dollar. How should they be thinking about their teams in this environment? What skills, capabilities, what investments, what development do you need to to manage this almost overwhelming changes in technology and media and then be able to translate it right to the broader organization. You have to become sort of a community college, right? To teach your, to teach your team about it. What, what yeah. do you see? I, I, I love the way you just landed the question, right? It's back to school. Yeah. So you know, I, I didn't come into this field thinking that I was going to be in PR or in communications. I came in through technology. I came in through startups. And that gave me a, a different sensibility, you know, coming into the world of agency life at Edelman and obviously a long run at Weber. Why that is pertinent to your question is we had to learn a ton when blogs came to fore, when social networks came to, you know, came to the table, when social video became a thing, kind of that alarm was felt then, but that was like a, you know, more of a, of a fear of being left out, not a fear of being pummeled by, by an adversary. We spent years studying, learning through doing, and helping our clients move from the idea of of PR as a analog business to PR as a digital business. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're back to school again. We're back to the early 2000s, and we have to treat learning and development seriously. If we are going to be trusted advisors inside of our organizations, and trusted advisors to those that call on agencies like ours to, you know, to do our thing. And that's no small task today because everyone is so busy just trying to keep the boats afloat. And oh my gosh, now we have to, we have to go back to school. Exactly. So your comment on community college is actually how we've taken media genius from a, almost like an open learning environment in a, in a value add for an internal and external community. And we're bringing that to clients now. So we have clients investing in ongoing, I don't want to call it education, it's group awareness building and group sensibility training, and then group decoding around how tactics are being used in ways that might be unfamiliar, Mm -hmm. and then moving into piloting different things based on 
a different sensibility, different awareness and different trial and error. That's the only way any of us are going to make the migration into deep digital business uh, <laughs> in communications, which is where we're going into. Absolutely. Okay, Chris, take, take Gary and I to school on the whole question of emerging technology. Oof. Immediate genius, your, uh, your colleague, Julia Dixon, wrote about an exploding online trend known as reality shifting, that somehow you, you script this, but users employ an app to shift their current reality or CR to a specific desired reality, which can be a fictional setting like Harry Potter's Hogwarts or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and, and I think about that, you know, Gary and I are keen to, you know, back cleanup for the New York Yankees. <laughs> so help us unblur the lines between CR and DR. And how does this mix with virtue, virtual reality, augmented reality and mixed reality? Some of us just are kind of confused, I think, with all of this lingo. Also, what's the benefit in this new new technology, if you will, for communicators, and, and how might they become better immersed? Okay, so Mike, we're going to need a whole other podcast to break this down, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll take a stab at trying to- Long way to go, I realize that. Yeah, I, I think what's super important in order to answer that question is to not talk about the technology, but to talk about where we are as humans. And I'll, I'll make this super literal for you. As a part of Media Genius, we also do research, and we did some ethnographic research with the Institute for the Future in 2020 last year. The premise of the research was focused on a very big question, which is, again, in the middle of the pandemic and the breakdown of institutional trust and all these things that we know are playing out, how do people make sense of a world that doesn't seem to make sense anymore? Super big question, and that's why we went to a forecasting institute to try to understand this versus, you know, a, a typical, you know, research capably, you know, in our field or even in our own company. One of the key things that we found is people are resilient, people are entrepreneurial, and people have tools to create reality when they don't believe, when they don't believe what comes from their trusted institutions. Mm -hmm. That applies to church, it applies, you know, or, or whatever your religious affiliation is, government, business, health, it applies across the board. The ethnographic research came back and said, based on both a, a psychological shift that we all felt, a technological capability that we all have, that DIY is now the thing. We can go and we can make up our reality, huh. either for entertainment or for identity and ideology in any way that we want to these days. And so when you see things like QAnon, you see things like anti-vax movements. That's the, that's the serious side of the stuff. And obviously there, there, there's challenges that go with that. My sense is that that will ultimately shake out over time. Where it becomes super interesting, and this is born of the research and also more of the, more of the technology and venture capital assessments that, that we and others do, is there's a tremendous amount of capital going into virtual worlds and niche social networks. So let's start with the niche social networks, and then we get to kind of the weird stuff, Mike, that you were alluding to. There was a tremendous movement from performative social media on Facebook and, and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok into more purpose-based community building in Reddit, Discord, Slack, Google Docs, 
where people are doing things with these tools. They're not just projecting, you know, their perfect selves through these tools. There's a grid that underpins a lot of change where people are going to not only take on realities and fictional realities, mm -hmm. but also commercial realities in ways that we can't, we can't begin to get our arms around. I'll give you one anecdote that's commercial, and then we'll try to get to this metaverse piece and do it in less time than I've explained that this point so far. <laughs> the Economist covered the, the distributed finance and NFT movement, I think it was uh, in September. Yesterday, they put out a cover of that NFT for bid. In 24 hours, that cover is worth $42,000. Wow. Just in 24 hours. So you're starting to see the economics of these, what we would think of as fringe communities, that as Julia pointed out in her post, have millions of people or tens of millions of people engaged and they're doing different things with different economics. So when I, in, in Gary referenced earlier, let's go back to community college. That's the stuff that we need to be studying. And it applies to things like NFTs, blockchain. And then we get into the metaverse you know, side of things, which going back to school, if web 1.0 was, hey, we have to figure out how we're going to get on blogs and into podcasts and social video, we're going to have to set up shop in virtual worlds. And we're going to have to think about the ethical implications and how we operate in those worlds. So, hey, if you want to be in the innovation business and the communications business, you have, you have, you have, a, you have a long career awaiting you. Absolutely. It's really interesting stuff to figure out. So the profession talks a lot these days, the PR profession, about ComTech. And most CCOs say they will be investing in technology next year and beyond. What new technologies should those in the profession really be taking a hard look at? Now, now we're getting into practical territory. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I've been worried about for some time as it relates to communications entities within corporations is they're basically the last mile that's not digitized inside of corporations. <laughs> communications does not run on enterprise software the way every other part of an organization runs. So we'll start with that. Enterprise software for communications needs to be about understanding. And that gets into, again, things that we talked about earlier. What kind of technology allows you to see how media works, to anticipate not only threats, but opportunities? I mean, a lot of this conversation has been about the dark side of innovation. There's still a tremendous amount of upside with innovation as well. But you can't take advantage of it if you can't see it, right? So the idea of having intelligence that informs communications is probably la layer one of the communications stack, if you will. Layer two gets into much more interesting territory and hard territory, and that's automation. Right now, I don't know if you guys have heard of GTP3. GTP3 is a way for machines to learn how to originate ideas and copy with minimal human intervention. Right now, there are roughly 300 apps available today that can help all of us write headlines, write introductions to press releases, mm -hmm. to write short form copy of any kind for social media posts. Well, and in fact, some news them. organizations have been experimenting right. with this sometimes. In fact, I, I remember coming across somebody at the Washington Post where they were using this technology or sort of the core sports story in terms of scores and, and, and data associated with the game. Yeah, so Mike, you brought, brought up something that just triggered a story that kind of brings a lot of these threads together. 
When you talk about reality shifting, again, some of it seems very new, but actually it's not. So think about fantasy football. Fantasy football is what? Roughly a $10 billion business. Wow. Right. What's really interesting when you get into the example that you just shared, groups like Narrative Science and Automated Insights have been working with Yahoo and others for years. And I remember roughly five years ago with my team, we had our draft. The draft ended at 10 p.m. Eastern time. At 10.02, I got a personalized email from Yahoo breaking down my team with, with, with shit talk. And like it, it, was, it was written like it came from a real commentator with real depth charts, graphs, and everything. And I was like, oh my God, how yeah. are they able to not only deliver the quality, but do it personalized to me in millions of other people. So that's both the promise of reality bending and automation. And also if you think about it in the wrong hands and the wrong ethics, holy cow, is there a lot that's going to change in the next few years? Can you imagine people in the profession almost using it for anything else as, as a first draft, right? Yeah. And, and, that, and that, that's really, I mean, I, I, I use these tools and, you know, th there's a lot of uh, obviously hype with this stuff. And there's also the first time I saw it, I, I couldn't believe the power of this. If it's, you know, a human technology fusion, not that we're going to turn all this stuff over to machines. I, I don't see how that's going to happen, you know, anytime soon, but you never know with this stuff. Well, you know, some of the financial wire services use robots, particularly on things like earnings. Yes. To to churn out as quickly as they possibly can. I remember having a conversation with a CEO of a big company complaining about how those wire services treated the first news of earnings. And I recommended that she not worry about that because there's no one to talk to. Yes. <laughs> it's a robot, right? Who are you going to call? <laughs> Who are you going to call? So, so Chris, we're, we're taping this in the midst of the Facebook papers and what that apparently reveals about the company, but I'm not going to ask you specifically about them, but I want to get into this idea, something you wrote about on, on Media Genius recently. You say from Instagram face to Snapchat dysmorphia to the face to, to the Facetune boom, AI-induced anxiety has led millions to seek out plastic surgery or cosmetic services in an attempt to resemble altered versions of themselves or others. And this raises questions about obviously mental health and adolescent confidence, et cetera. So these stories about Facebook particularly and, and TikTok and some other things and its impact on the mental health of young people seem to have gotten the focus of politicians, activists, regulators. So what comes next generally for these platforms and for the technology that enables them? Are we gonna see regulations are you going to see self-regulation? Where, where are, is this going to go as it seems like, again, I'm not asking you about Facebook specifically, the, the, the news media is really focused on the social, political, and economic impact of information that's being shared on these platforms. Yeah. So again, this is another podcast. <laughs> but, 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 but but let's uh, you're right you're absolutely yeah, right let, let's try to dig into this one at a high level one the media is late it's way yeah. late to the party on this there's a reason why if, if if you think about you know those that created these technologies not allowing their kids on them they they they, they knew the power of these things yeah so and, and that 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 was a phenomenon that's you know you know more than a decade old i think what was it the social dilemma 
mainstream, the understanding that, 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 that a lot of insiders had that, you know, th- there's a lot of positive with social media. There's also a lot of negative with, you know, with, with it as well. And that, that's not necessarily, I, I know that the platforms are taking a beating right now, but it's how people use these, you know, that has these effects that aren't great. The challenge from a technologist or a platform standpoint is the algorithms. Mm-hmm. A lot of this stuff is automated. Once you get to the level of trying to automate personal feeds for billions of people around the world, the genie's out of the bottle mm-hmm. and it's a black box. So as much as, again, the regulators will try to regulate social media, good luck. How are you going to do that? Right. What's going to likely happen is people are going to get wise. They're going to move on to different things. And you're not going to have 2 billion people on these platforms trying to project something that's not reality. Mm-hmm. People are going into private networks in mass. They're doing different things in these networks. And then when you think about the phenomenon of blockchain in more of a distributed, more open, less consolidated power, we're going to swing back to where we were in 2000, mm-hmm. which was really about this vision of Web 2.0. In it having more of an empowerment element versus a you know dehumanizing element that we're feeling today. I, I I hope we look back 20 years from now and say, wow, that whole social media thing was again the last gasp of performative TV. You're right. And we're into something that's a little bit more constructive. T- tell me just a quick follow-up question. Private networks, how are they being used? They're being used for all kinds of different things. I mean, you, look, look at look at one example of the power of private networks, and that's Wall Street bets. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and some of those aren't private networks. I mean, you could see a lot of that playing out on Reddit. A lot of the action was hanging, was playing out, and still does in Discord. So, if you have these private communities on Slack or Discord, or you know, th- th- there's really interesting, you know, energy around knowledge management, around you know, platforms like like Rome and Notion. People are using these things in ways that, again, are about changing the way knowledge is created and transferred, how economies are built and who benefits from them around, you know, you think about going back to Mike's question about reality. Mm -hmm. There's a different type of spiritual movement that's happening in these private networks, witchcraft, tarot cards, Wow, you know, a bit of a reversal around, you know, different, you know, practices, religious practices that now have a digital twist to them. We're just living differently. There's a pre-COVID and there's a post-COVID. And I think we have to, we have to understand the depths of what we're, you know, what we're all doing these days, if we're going to be relatable in these worlds. Exactly. So Chris, kind of the last question for me is media genius is, as you've already alluded to, has an education component. You have an open information exchange for students and paid fellowships. Tell our audience a little more about that and why you're doing that. Yeah, I I appreciate you asking that question, Mike, because again, to your point, we created this from day one as an open learning network. The vehicle that we used as the first tactic was the newsletter. Anyone can subscribe to it. Anyone can go back in the archives, again, going back to 2018 and kind of see some of the patterns at work. We've created study guides. The first study guide we created was a combination of, again, research that we and our partners have pulled together, but also what we thought were some of the best open learning courses across all the different five different territories that we thought were going to change the communications game. We've moved from the idea of Media Genius being a content platform to Media Genius being a community. Because really, again, to the questions that you've both asked, 
in going back to school, this is not passive, it's active. And it's not, you know, coming from a single expert. It's coming from communities of engaged people that are learning together as a group versus, again, you know, any kind of hierarchy. We've got a, a network of roughly 700 students. Wow. You know, spanning from community college through, you know, I, Ivy Leagues and Again, you know, some of the, you know, more competitive institutions, we have a ton of people from BU that are both a part of the community and have been a part of our student network. So that, 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 that's great. Thank you guys. Can you tell us any of them are Gary's students? (laughs) Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll start to parse that and what we'll, but, but also I, I think the last thing that I'll mention, and this, this is super important. It gets back to some of the, you know, integrity that we're trying to put behind this. We have brought in some really great people from various parts of technology, media, media activism, influencers, to talk to students about how to use their passion for media and their expertise in media and use it for a purpose and good and in moving things forward that they want to do with their lives. We believe that there's no more important field of study than media right now. It's the most energized, the most creative, the most active, the most opportunistic, and the most treacherous. Hmm. So we're seeing in our in those that are part of the community and part of the, the pool that wants to join our fellowship, the majors are all over the board. There are math majors, there are communications majors, journalism majors, theology majors, because media encompasses all of those territories and more now. So the more people that we can get into this, I think the greater we'll be able to spread the knowledge, you know, both what people can give and what people can take. And so I appreciate, you know, you guys having me a part of the the podcast and being able to talk about it a bit because I think we have to do a better job of getting the word out. Fabulous. Last point, 50 plus majors are represented in the the community. Wow. Reinforce that. Excellent. Well, you can see why we wanted to have Chris on the crux, just a, a incredible font of information on what is changing our profession today. Chris is the chief innovation officer at Weber Shanwick. His newsletter is Media Genius, and I, I hope I'm going to get this right, Chris. You can find it at mediagenius, one word, dot webershanwick.com. Is that right, Chris? That's correct. And not only can you subscribe to the newsletter there, the research that I referenced is covered there. The study guides, uh, you know, a pretty rich trove of knowledge is there, you know, for your perusal and in, in, in bu- building on top of that. So uh, again, a, a good source if you're interested in all the topics we talked about today. Terrific. Chris, it's been great. Thanks for being on the crux. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.